everyone, this is Tony Holbein from Groblox. You are listening to The Revenue Formula. In today's episode, we're talking with Norman Rohr about his time at Google and Uberall and how they changed the perception of being underdogs. Enjoy. How are we going to be funny now? On command, you cannot be funny. It doesn't work like that. I thought that's how it works with no. an entertainer. I thought you would be an entertainer. I mean, if you're a stand-up comedian, maybe you can crack some kind of a joke, but it's just not what I am being paid for, at least. It's not what I, you know, what keeps <laughs> me up at night. It's not how do I make a good comedy intro for this show. Well, we're sitting here today again. Yes. Because we have another wonderful guest joining us. Yeah, we have Norm on the show with us. Norm. <laughs> Norman on the show. <laughs> there's the intro. Sorry. Yeah, there's the intro. Norman. No, got it. So, do you, are you going to be, are some folks referring to you as Norm? I'm thinking this is a very American. Yeah, thing. it actually happened at business school. There was this uh, Canadian, she always called me Norm. It actually sucks. It was better than being called Norman because, uh, you know, there's social norms in German, Norman. So, that's when I always woke yeah. up at school. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> And actually, so you told me uh, last week you were listening to the show and you heard about the blizzard in Germany, right? And uh, did I get this right? You were biking <laughs> while, while you were talking with me and there was snow as well or... Did I get that right? Yeah, yeah. So I actually had listened to your show where I think Tony complained about driving in northern Germany or how bad mm. it was. It was actually Weweberse in uh, Munich. So we had about... <laughs> I think the biggest snow since 2006 and was literally frozen, but uh, okay, I swapped from the two-wheeler to the three-wheeler, but I have to haul my kids around, so bike is my preference. But, I mean, basically trains stopped running, that's a, that's a first, and airport was shut down for what, a week or something like this? A few days, yeah. But the internet was running, right? Tell, don't tell me the internet was down. <laughs> The internet was there, no. yes. <laughs> so that's funny. You can make that kind of joke. I so can't. who is who is Norman, actually? We need to still introduce him. Well, uh, currently VP uh, Marketing at Capmo. Uh, you also run advisory and B2B coaching. Uh, I saw you've been at both Google and Uber all, so we're going to get into that. But actually, yep. I know you had an untraditional upbringing in marketing, or at least entry point to marketing. So would love to maybe just, maybe you can tell the listeners a little bit about uh, your background and, and who you are. Oh, uh, I hope I'm not getting stoned or by any of the marketers <laughs> on the show. But uh, to be quite frank, I never wanted to end up in marketing. And the reason is, I'm not sure how it was for you guys at university. I'm a numbers guy. And all the people who, ended, uh, who elected to go into marketing, they had nothing to do with numbers. They just wanted to be there to basically tell nice stories. So what I did is basically I focused on operations, finance, international business, but I was literally numbers is what counts. Didn't mean that I had no interest in marketing, but it was just it's for the people without the numbers. Yeah. So after business school, I initially joined uh, actually quite a good startup in Switzerland, uh, S-Works, who was one of the most successful uh, exits later on. Um, Still in finance, and then at some point I decided, okay, I need to join a big company. I joined Google again in finance, but there I transitioned into marketing finance. And rather than sitting with the finance folks, I was sitting in finance uh, with the, in, in the middle of the marketers, and I was, oh, I'm actually more like them. <laughs> so it was also code marketing that helps. So very very number driven. At some point, one of the VP finance guys came to me and said, Norman. I think for a finance person, you're way too interested in changing the business. 
<laughs> at the same time, um, Arian Dyke, who is now CEO of Booking.com, he was my business partner back then. And he said, Norman, you finance guys, you can always make those smart suggestions, but you don't have to deliver on it. So at some point, uh, I told him over lunch, Arian, send me to Japan. I show you I make APEC work. And that's how I ended up on the marketing side and never, ever left it again. Jesus. Okay. So basically, kind of give, tell me the story one more time. So we are like in the, the Munich, Switzerland area. It's like southern, southern Germany, Austria, Switzerland, right? Kind of ish there, I guess. And then basically making the jump over to the APEC office for, for Google. Was, was, that, was that how the journey went? Mm, it's a bit longer. So I've basically worked on four different continents by now. I joined Google in Switzerland. Yeah, Svox was a Swiss company. You probably can still hear from my accent. I'm German, so I can't no. hide this. No, you can't hear that. <laughs> I... Um, Day of Google, I first moved to uh, London for a summer, which was really nice. London summers are underrated. Yeah. Moved over to Mountain View. That's where I basically worked in marketing finance. Then yeah. from there in 2012, made the jump uh, across the Pacific into Japan, was in charge of Asia Pacific for SMB yeah. marketing. Then I had one more stop uh, for Google, which was Canada as the SMB country marketing manager. Yeah. And then eventually it was time to go back into startup mode. So I first joined a Boston startup and then at some point came back to Europe. Wow. So it's so nice to have a person who moved to marketing rather, usually it's the opposite. We have some, oh, I'm no, I'm no longer really a marketing, marketing person or, you know, stuff like that. So it's good to have someone who actually moved into marketing. That's, that's going to be great. It's a plus one on your side of yeah. the, you know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, nice. So, I mean, what we... Actually, my, my quick thing on this one is, uh, so by the way, I think in Germany, uh, both marketing and sales, both of them are like a really bad reputation, right? And uh, you can't study sales in university. So it's the only thing is like marketing you can study in university. And it's always like this fonts and colors uh, kind of thing. And I don't know, the, the four Ps and, and whatever you learn <laughs> from the marketing professor. So I had the exact same approach like you in this one. It was like, no, marketing, this is for like, you know, uh, fluffy stuff, you know. I don't want to. I don't want to kind of dabble in this. And I don't know. I'm not sure if I am. I am a marketeer now. Am I like more as a sales? What? What is it, Michael Nunn? You're a puppet. Ah, okay. You know what? <laughs> yeah, well, I'll, 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 I'll go with that. So I'll go with that. You know how? Uh, it, so it was the same for me. I also looked at the marketing courses in university. And were like, ah, uh -uh, not doing that. I read the HubSpot blog instead and stuff like that. That was how I learned it. Well, HubSpot did it. Oh, Michael, you're giving away thing. how young you are. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I recently had a conversation with the VC and both of us could talk about the dot-com bubble and the parallels oh, to here. Yeah. So SWOX we literally built in the 2000s. There was no funding, nothing. So when we tried to exit the company in 2007, 2008, uh, some of the US uh, investors who were interested in buying, they said, what? You only built this amazing business with $6 million. They couldn't understand that you had to literally bootstrap <laughs> from one angel on to the next. Yeah. Nice. So uh, what we wanted to get into is obviously some of the stories uh, that you've experienced throughout your career. And I think we've, we've pinpointed like two areas because you mentioned your time at Google. And actually that uh, you were an underdog, which is very counterintuitive. It's, I mean, by now it's a trillion dollar company. I'm not... I don't know how big it was back then, but at least when I got into whole, all this uh, tech startup realm, it was pretty big also back then, right? So love to hear about uh, about that story and maybe give us a clue as to when 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 was it happening and you know why was Google even considered an underdog? 
Yeah, that's actually a good question. And uh, even back then, Google was a giant. So when I joined, we were, I think, 20,000 people. When I left, <laughs> we were probably closer to 100,000 in the course of those eight years. But there are certain markets where there are local people who rule the market. Obviously, you know about China, where they are completely blocked. But if you think about Czech Republic, had Cessna at some point, there's uh, Russia uh, with Yandex. Uh, but I'm talking more about... Uh, Asian Pacific arena and there's obviously Japan where Google took a long time to overtake Yahoo and if you look at Korea even today Google has uh, I think it's a more the challenger you would call it back when I was there it was the loser in the search arena probably just some low double digit percentage in the search space so how do you go about this market and I always approach topics as a product marketer not the one who writes the product sheets for the company, but really thinking about what's the audience? What are they looking for? How you can solve their problem? And that's exactly how I looked at the market. I, if you're the underdog, you have two options. Either you reshape how the industry is perceived in the product, or you reshape how your company is perceived. Mm. And the starting point is looking for strengths. Well, if you don't have strengths, we have to get into completely different discussions. But Google had a couple of strengths. They just were overlooked so much so that when I first said, oh, I want to figure out Korea, I was told by both my manager as well as the VP on Hub, no, don't do it. But in fact, Google had a strength. Think about PSI. That's about the time frame when it was 2012. PSI was just coming and PSI was a phenomenon on YouTube. So were all the K-pop activities. In fact, Google had completely overlooked, back then YouTube was for not a medium for SMB yet. Google had completely overlooked that they were one of the market leaders and had a huge search volume on, um, on YouTube. So you yeah. just reshaped the story. You basically started telling based on, and forget about search. Yeah, we have search, it's an add-on, but what we are actually is via YouTube. Then you need to start telling the story. And I think, um, Tony, you asked me about how do you may, uh, get, uh, get more relevant for salespeople? How do you get salespeople into the door? So you basically equip salespeople and then you sell your assets. So we hosted a lot of events where people, advertisers could actually come in and talk to PSI, talk to the K-pop people that they would normally just see from afar. So what is PSI, by the way? So maybe, maybe uh, it's not just me. Not Gangnam now. Style. Ah, hmm. Okay. The, <laughs> the chubby Korean who was no, no, this no, no, complete, no. I think. Everyone, everyone knows now. Everyone knows now. Yeah. Uh, okay. I think for the video proponent of this, we can edit him in, like with that crazy dance. You mean in the in the period of time we forgot to hit record on the camera? Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I thought we were done with the intro, by the way. Sorry, anyway, slipping. So back uh, to the back to the story. So you said really looking at the strength, like maybe take us through the, the journey because you said people discourage you internally to go and actually build up that market. What were the steps uh, you over at Google uh, took back then in order to say, no, 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 we need to go and push through? Did you just do it irregardless uh, or, or like what was the approach like from from day one there? Yeah, to, to tell you the truth, I'm a renegade. So don't hire me. Uh, I'm the worst person that you could hire for a big company that is in very stale processes. And mm. Google always encouraged those 20%. So yes, I did my day-to-day -day job looking at the agency and I basically said, okay, I personally own Korea, which is obviously tough. Uh, I don't speak Korean. It's one of the more difficult languages, but I thought uh, Korea is still one of the biggest uh, economies in the world. So there must be something. 
So I looked into the market. I talked to the people on the ground, got, uh, got their... Uh, got their trust and we basically figured out okay what's in the game there's some additional challenges korea is actually a market that is heavily controlled by the agencies and the agencies want money and google mm. because it's against corruption doesn't want to pay the money so what do you do you need to find something that triggers the agencies and things that you are uh, that it's worthwhile dealing with it so we really analyze the market but in the end it's serendipity because i emerged from the market yeah. The, and talk to the right people. Often, I think that's my experience. If you join somewhere as a head of marketing or a VP or so on, you talk just to your layer and the ideas are actually on the ground. So talk to the people on the ground, sit down, listen to them. And at some point, uh, it turned out there's a theme with, you, uh, with YouTube because all of them were super engaged. They believed in it. So let's double down on this. Sometimes mm. you just need to try things that you are convinced of and that's what we did. And then, so, I mean, all of this sounds and feels so super abstract because, oh, wow, it's Google and it's like YouTube and it's, you know, it's Korea. <laughs> but actually what you're just saying is like, hey, um, when you say strength, like no one cared much about Google search, but people cared about K-pop and cared about, you know, Gangnam style. This is, and that was basically happening on YouTube. And then you basically were kind of forging a, let's just say a sales argument or a pitch almost based on that. That then led to leveraging maybe the core business of Google. Is is that is that basically kind of how you then went about it, and then went to those big agencies that said, hey, listen, we're like the YouTube shop, and we have a little bit of search on the side as well. But is is that how you then approach it? I have to say, you framed it a lot nicer than I did. What we in the <laughs> end, what I did was repositioning. You need to yeah. often it's a mental repositioning. Be it um, I just heard last week this example when Unbounce reshaped itself from landing pages to conversion optimization or commercial mm -hmm. analytics. So you had to reshape the positioning of Google as a search company to the YouTube company. And suddenly yeah. people understood why they should actually order, uh, advertise on you. I think yeah. similar story we have afterwards with Central or so on. You basically need to figure out what is the, uh, where's the mindset of the people, take your product and find a way to connect the two of them. Yeah. And so... I think so when you when you break this down to let's just say not um, I'm not sure where where Google's clocking in terms of revenue right now and back then but let's just say to like a 50 100 million business basically sure you have some product market fit kind of issues kind of lurking around but ultimately you also have a clear understanding that's our you know I think some people call it that's our 10x feature and in your case it's really that's our 10x feature in this market and then how can we leverage that in order to kind of sell the rest of uh, of, of the business, right? And I think uh, if, you, if you take this away and kind of think about it like this and then really lean into the strength, um, and this might be, an, you know, a satellite market like, you know, in, in UK is basically kind of uh, Korea, um, but it might also be a core market just early on in the journey, right? Kind of really doubling down on that. And I guess at the same time, you not only have the really good argument uh, for one product, but that also might be how you can shape the journey for product number two and three, right? Because when you are around the 50, 100 million stage, that might be the place where suddenly um, you guys are, you know, introducing a new product line, for example, and you will, you run through the same motions just a little bit faster with more capital to figure out product market fit. And, you know, I'm just trying to kind of frame it in a way where uh, some of our audience would be like, hey, you know what, actually the problem that you solved there for Google um, very, very similar to what we are running into every day, right? Because I think that's exactly what it is. Exactly. I actually, I think the more relatable case is even at Central where we sold an ERP platform. And the challenge is 
no one actually looks for an ERP. No one looks for a platform. People at an SMB level, they are looking for the solution to their day-to-day -day challenge. So you have to first find this initial beachhead where you can break in, where you can open up their mind, you solve an immediate problem and you open, uh, you uh, pave the ground for the next problem that you can solve. And mm -hmm. at some point at the end of the journey, they're on this platform or how you call it, this entire bundle of product. Mm -hmm. The problem though is that most people make it too complicated, particularly in the SMB space. Uh, they just tell the platform story and don't understand the people will switch off. It's a mental overload. Think about your business. The thing that you think about is, hey, I currently have this challenge. I currently have this challenge. If you are not in the top two, you just wipe it off the table until you have the, uh, the mental capacity to put it up yeah. into the trip two. But, but basically, kind of when you compare it to the ERP space, right? So you would basically say like, well, invoicing, that's the problem on top of someone's head uh, or mind. Um, and that would be the message. And then, yes, in order to solve that, you kind of sell an ERP and then can do accounting and all the other things as well, I guess. I don't know. But I'm just kind of basically kind of breaking it down into like small, super relevant pieces and bits for someone to pick it up there and then go from there. Exactly. So you think about the journey. How do they explore? And I explained this in the example mm -hmm. of the ERP in a second. And then you basically try to up-level, but don't try to immediately say, hey, you need a platform. Then immediately say, yeah. oh, it's too complicated. So if I think about uh, ERP for e-commerce, yes, you're right. They need an accounting. They need an invoicing. They need a payment solution. All this they can get from individual things. But then you run for the first time in the issue, oh, I had switched on Google Ads and I didn't have the inventory. I need inventory management. That's where you can pick them up where you, for the first time you have a competitive advantage. At some point, they might have so many orders, they need an order management tool because they can't handle it in Excel anymore. Then they realize I uh, copying from one side to the other doesn't do me any good. I need a central data management. And so you get them slowly onto the system. And the message then is, hey, we help you solve your day-to-day -day problem and you can grow with us when you're ready to the next step. So never yeah. ever mention the platform until they are completely ready because otherwise, oh, I don't want a platform. I just want to solve this problem uh, unless they are obviously experienced. And then we are talking about a completely different customer segment. But, but, I, but I do believe, I think, you know, and I think, you know, for the, for the platform play, I think you need to have a lot of brand trust already. Uh, that's basically this in the market, right? For you and for, for your product. Um, I think it's super relevant for every new challenger coming out trying to attack an existing platform or trying to come up with a platform. I think um, the path that you just laid out there is the path of much less resistant to actually kind of get there. And on the flip side, you even get a nice equity story out of this because you basically can build this in a, you know, land and expand kind of fashion, right? You kind of land the first deal, it's low friction, no problem. It's exactly for the buyer persona that sits there, not for you know, the full CEO to buy in, kind of just for kind of someone there in the corner to make that decision, which helps your sales cycles, which helps your conversion rates. And then from there, you can basically kind of grow into the organization or grow with the organization, right? Both of these are fantastic use cases to show, you know, great net retention, for example. Yeah, I almost say we come from one issue to another. We can talk for a couple of hours now <laughs> because now we have exactly what I call the dichotomy between uh, SMB or the, let's call small business and enterprise. In enterprise, you actually want to get as high as possible onto the tree, to quote uh, John McMahon from Qualified Sales Leader. The reason is because the, in order to get the entire organization, you need the CEO buy-in, even if you afterwards have a pilot in the lower yeah. branch. However, yeah. in the SMB space, 
you can't pitch that high because they want to first solve the problem. They are a lot more budget conscious. So you start mm -hmm. with the low end and then buy them gradually. In. So it's almost like a product-led growth or as the company grow, you take them with you. Um, so that would be the difference where I say platform is probably the most suitable thing on the enterprise side, particularly if you have shortcomings on some of the features and you want to block mm -hmm. some of the people who are better in the island solutions. Mm -hmm. Whereas for SMB, often your product is just fine. So don't tell them platform, sell them what you can deliver and how it solves the problem that they are ready for the next step. I'm uh, thinking actually yes. whether we should switch over to that, Uber. That's exactly the that's thing. That's exactly what you wanted to yes. do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I guess from Korea to what the German market, no? Isn't that where... Uber is German, yeah, yeah. yeah it's a German. So it's one of the bigger companies today. You also mentioned there was a bit of a, a challenge and perception around Uber being an underdog as well. So we'd love to hear actually that story. Yeah, it was actually funny. Uh, but back when I joined them, yeah, some people had heard, but probably a lot more, more people had heard about Yext, which is the global beer mod mm -hmm. in the space. And the funny bit is uh, even though Uber in the end was probably revenue-wise the second largest company in the space and maybe location-wise even the largest, no one knew about it. So just to give you a couple of funny instances, early on, I started talking to the foresters, the gardeners and so on. I asked him why we are not covered in your reports. They said, well, we never heard of you. And I said, well, six out of the 10 companies that you list there are actually using our technology. So what Uberall had very successfully done is they had actually grown very efficiently in this S&P space via resellers and had only focused on the mid-market. But as a consequence, they were basically perceived as a not one of the big players in the market and um, because they sold location marketing location marketing doesn't sound sexy so they basically sold primarily to digital marketers maybe to the head of digital mm -hmm. so what do you do uh, you need to give this uh, you need to uh, you need to raise the importance Uh, one of the things when I talk to the salespeople, like I told you, uh, like I mentioned before, I always talk to the people on the ground. He said, Norman, we aren't getting nowhere. We, have to, we are making cold calls, cold calls. The people here are location marketing, they switch off. Or we're never, uh, we're never getting through to the people where we can actually pitch the bigger budgets. The irony is, if you look today at the market, location marketing, so Google local search, is actually the, um, the, over 50% of all of Google searches, but people mm. don't know it. So... Yeah. Tackling those two, I broke it down. First of all, you need to show Uber, we are not a, uh, we are an underdog, but a really, really big underdog. That was the first step. The second uh, step is how can you reposition Uber so that people perceive the category as an important. So how do we tackle it? I, when I did my own investigation, my homework, when I started, I realized most people... Uh, the reports they published is what well, maybe Moment Feed published 20 uh, in a study of 20 companies. There was something with a couple of hundred locations. And then Cinda, the big industry association in EMEA, published uh, something with two and a half thousand companies across 30 states in Europe. So basically 80 companies per state uh, or per country. And then I, and I think there, that's where I saw the opportunity. Add to this, A voice search was actually back then. Everyone wanted to know about voice search. People were experimenting with Google Assistant and so on. So basically what we did is we scanned 105,000 locations or businesses across three markets and looked into, uh, looked into how they are already with voice search. 
super, super cool. Now just imagine Cinder announces uh, two and a half, yeah, their study with two and a half thousand locations and 20 minutes later on stage, Ubal talks about 105,000 locations. Yeah. It was such a blow up. Uh, we had, and I never expected this, a couple of hundreds super amazing leads within the first week. People suddenly started calling us, say, can you come in and talk about how we are ready for voice search and so on. So it completely shifted the game from we trying to get into the door to people calling us. We want to get into the door. We want to understand how we are performing against the industry, how we are performing against the location. What can we do better? And tell me more about it. Um, it also had another side effect that was quite funny. Um, before us, Yext was riding the voice search uh, uh, wave. After our report, they never ever mentioned voice search anymore because they didn't want to link, uh, basically uh, lead traffic to us because we had a more important study. And I'm and I'm just assuming, right? That kind of insight was that basically. So to a degree, there's this underdog piece, but to another degree, there's also this growing up in the organization piece to it, right? Because it, you know, people that we're listening to might have not only been the digital marketers that you're used to talking uh, to before, but maybe also a bit higher up. Is that is it a correct assumption, or what what really happened there? Because it's it's both a underdog and it's an SMB to enterprise jump that you kind of executed in that in that approach. Exactly. So I wouldn't call it SMB, but I would call it. Um, the importance of the people we are talking, uh, talking to in the mid-market or in the enterprise sector. So suddenly it was not a head of digital topic anymore because voice search was often with some special director who did all mm -hmm. the experimental stuff. But we didn't leave it at this. The second thing that we did is we came up with, uh, with the report uh, Reputation Management Revolution. What we did there is for the first time we could uh, prove the impact of conversion rates once you had a certain... A rating for your location. So we knew that the critical points were 3.8, 4.3, 4.7, and we could people give a guidance how to get there and how some of the locations were underperforming. And suddenly you talked at a level head of brand, CMO, because that's, mm -hmm. uh, that's the people who are really relevant. You actually helped the head of digital, or head of customer experience to get the resources to respond to reviewers, to deal with people who are unsatisfied. So I remember I was in a room presenting to uh, to a big German bank. I don't want to mention the name. And I could literally call out, yeah, and there in this city, you have this uh, branch that has only a rating of 2.8. And in this location, you have and then, um, and the people who for formerly blocked us from getting higher up the tree, they say, oh, yeah, it's true, but we can't do anything. And it's because for this and this reason, and then they look to the head of brand or the CMO, can you please give us permission that we can uh, work with Ubal to fixing this problem? So mm. suddenly... Uh, Ubal became almost a challenge, I would call it. Basically, help mm -hmm. us improve our business. So you moved from someone who always knocked on door, can we do? Uh, let's do some small digital project. To hey, we are here there to uh, to improve our business, and that's actually where we in the end um, changed our positioning. We moved away from location marketing. There are lots of companies. We moved to hybrid customer experience. We helped via digital solutions to fix your physical retail locations in the world. After the fact, all of these stories are always so, so great, right? Especially if they work out, it's like check, 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 check. You know, Norman, the super brain uh, and team and other people probably figured this out. How much of that would you kind of assign to also serendipity, right? Kind of, you mentioned that previously, right? And it's like, you, you do those things, you come up with this uh, piece of research, you are on stage, you know, Yek starts to not talk about voice search anymore. You are at, 
you know, either Deutsche or Commerzbank or Dresdner Bank or something like that and sit there and kind of, you know, do these, uh, do these pitches. How much of that, um, you know, really was um, a straight line versus, oh, wow, this worked and this worked again and this worked again and serendipity suddenly kind of exploding in, in the best possible way? Let me do a bit of a segue. I'm a marketer. I'm allowed to do the storytelling. So wind back to my last month at, um, at Google sitting on a car with a good friend of mine. He's now with uh, Coinbase and so on. We're sitting there and we're saying, Sajak, what do you think? How much, of our, uh, how much of Google's code is because of us or despite of us? Because I've seen <laughs> yeah. all those uh, golden boys from the cash who moved to other companies and then it didn't really break through. Mm -hmm. And so I say, it's always serendipity. It's never a straight line. But you can, with the right process and with an open mindset, you can change it. So I would, for example, even Uber on the voice search, I credit to me talking to some of the uh, people on the ground and one of them had this amazing idea and then you take this idea and you put, uh, you put it to your next level. So I would actually say as a at VP or CMO level, you're basically the person who edits the story. How can you take something that those super smart brains that are junior marketing managers, the, the sellers or so, that they carry to you, how can, how can you shape it, make it perfect and take it to the next level? But yes, you need to do your homework. If I hadn't talked to the people, if I hadn't understood the opportunity, the competitive environment, I would not have been able. So Tony, I credit totally the people who gave me the ideas, but I believe with the right process, you can get faster results. But then again, I'm the first one to admit I tried to replicate something like this at a different company. It took much longer. So I think mm -hmm. overall, I have to credit, was by far the fastest success in reshaping this. Mm -hmm. Google Korea was the 12 months also quite a, a, quite a fast turn. Sometimes when you reshape things with product marketing, it takes a long time, particularly when you want to create a new category. That's a marathon, I would say you need 12 months or more. Yeah, I was about to ask you about the time frame behind this, but basically kind of 12 months and more. Yeah, there you go. For Uber, it was so, actually an immediate win, but I didn't count on it. It was just, a, let's call it a lucky punch. Yeah. But I mean, so I'm also curious here because you mentioned you did this massive study. I'm sure there were a bunch of other things you did beyond just that, right? It's, it's rarely just the trick of one specific tactic that leads to the success, uh, right? And, and I mean, repositioning in itself is a massive kind of exercise. So what, what are some of the thing, other things you kind of did surrounding that piece to, to basically assist Uball becoming, you know, more known? Yeah, that's a good question. And um, I think we can talk about it. So obviously, as a marketer, when you only work on the strategic things, you're getting fired before there are any results. So Tony probably would do this. Um, <laughs> So the trick is actually to really balance short term and long term. Uh, long term. So you can't always get this right. Uh, sometimes there's so much foundational work that you need to do. It just takes you the six months before you can have the right messaging. You can't create push out ads with the incorrect messaging. But uh, what did we do? Uh, uh, what are the things that you can to do? Uh, do at Uberall, I was actually glad that I had already a team of twelve people. So that's quite a number of resources. So you could basically. Um, carve out the people who worked on a strategic thing that basically studies the storytelling to basically up-level the organization. At the same time, you um, can focus on improving your digital marketing to 
think about sales marketing alignment. How do you help sales be, uh, be better at targeting? Um, the first stuff, uh, the first things that I typically do is literally, who is the ICP? What are the personas? What's the value prop? If those things are in place, then you can literally work with it. And quite often, um, particularly I think up to 10 million ARR, people think they know their ICP. I think people uh, think they know their personas, but when you actually inquire, it's still a hunch that they maybe may have done first with the uh, investors. It changes from 10 million because then you actually want to build the engine. That's then mostly, I think, Tony, what you said, when there's a second, the third or the fourth product, when you really need to think about how you reposition your product portfolio. Is it a platform or is it, uh, is it just a range of products that uh, target different ICPs or different personas? So uh, in short, to answer your question, I think, Mika, um, I recommend looking for the quick wins, what's currently working. Try to optimize one or two channels, not more. And then work on the one thing that you actually believe strategically. It can be a failure, but try to identify the failure early so that you don't work six months on something big that doesn't that will never come. And how I'm also just curious here because you mentioned you talked with um, with analysts who were you know oblivious to the fact almost that Uberhaul existed. I, I guess there were also a process internally of aligning expectations with the the folks at the table. So to see, so to speak. So how how did you go about basically positioning this? Because it's a usually a big initiative also for a company to take on a reposition, uh, a repositioning exercise. So did, what kind of steps did you take there actually? That's actually a good question. The, um, first of all, you need executive alignment. So plus points if you have someone who. Uh, who supports you. So in my case, one of the founders, David, was already convinced that we need to break out. So you could work with him and uh, shape the story. I think it gets difficult if you have skeptics or, uh, or um, yeah. people who have an opposing opinion. I think then you need to start with the small wins. Like voice search was for me, it sounds big with 105,000, but it was the small win that gave the marketing team the credibility to do the next things. Once you have sales on your side, it's typically a lot easier. So I think that's also just segueing to um, to something I recently talked about, ABM. If you want to do account-based marketing, you just need sales on your side. Otherwise, it will be a failure. The same thing we basically did. Try to build, uh, try to establish the credibility, get some momentum, and then just uh, push it through. A friend of mine always talked it, the train mode. Once the train is running, you can't stop it anymore. But know when you have to stop it yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, I like that approach, right? Because it's also when someone says executive buy-in, you know, always my my eyes roll over. It's like, oh, okay, sure. But it's, I mean, it's um, at the end of the day, it's it's really like, are the top dogs are they like, are they in favor or are they against it, right? <laughs> and I can totally see if if there's someone sitting there with their arms crossed, it's very difficult to get these new pieces through. You kind of almost need to go through a Either you hyper-engineer this and have someone in the room that can help you shape this, which in, in your case maybe maybe was was the case, right? Or, and I really like this other approach, is like, well, if you're not basically sitting at the table yet, right, because of whatever reasons, you know, find those wins that enable you to sit there. And this is, this is a little bit, you know, you almost kind of executed this in a dual fashion, both with one of the founders being on your side and then you with... Uh, you know, checking some some boxes and actually delivering some wins. And 
and getting also some tailwind, I guess, then also from the sales team in order to to push something like that to fruition. Exactly. I think um, it's a lot it's a lot more difficult when you jump right away into things like hey, we need to do rebranding. We need to do complete repositioning. Uh, I think that's likely as a marketer is setting you up for, uh, for failure because people will lose the patience. Sometimes you have to go through this, but it requires a lot more communication that you first explain to people. Let's talk, let's go back to the central example. It was, when I joined, it was literally mantra. We have to market a platform. We have to talk, in, uh, we have to sell an ERP. It took me quite some time to explain why we need to sell the, the individual pain points that this is the much, a much, much bigger market. But it, uh, it burns a lot of your credibility until it finally works. So yeah. I think that's why I would always say try to get as much out of a, a, a get a small wins with the existing performance while you work on the strategic side. Yeah. And so one of the things that kind of frustrates me as a CRO is always you get a new VP marketing in and the first thing they look into is like, oh, the personas and the ICP and, you know, is the message <laughs> correct? And, and, and then they build like the message house and all of that stuff. But the, um, the, the key point here being, um, well, how do you want to push out ads, you know, very expensively if you don't know what to write on them and if you don't know what filters to select in the ad builder on LinkedIn, right? <laughs> How do you want to do that? And uh, and that basically kind of being, in, so the, the reason why I'm pointing this out, there are a bunch of zeros and RevOps folks listening that probably have the same thing like, ah, oh, another VP marketing that talks about, you know, defining personas and putting up posters and, and, and that kind of stuff. It has some really, for marketing folks, it has some real practical implications if you're not sure, or if you are, um, uh, if if you see gaps there, right? And kind of we had the same thing. I think uh, we talked to someone. And we're like, hey, we could also use LinkedIn to figure out who our persona is and figure out what the messaging is. And that guy was just looking at us like, guys, you're stupid. It's <laughs> it's probably the most expensive way you could do that, right? <laughs> and and that's that's the reason why you know, especially when someone experience comes in into this into the VP marketing spot. You know, really solidifying that, figuring this out, maybe checking it, maybe working with a third party with like a, a consulting analyst kind of play to make sure that this is actually true, right? And then once you have that, once you have that, um, you know, solid base in place, you can nicely build on top and build up the audience and warm them up and, you know, do all of those things. But that's still going to take you six to nine to 12 months probably before that really comes back. I guess, I don't know what your opinion is. First of all, I love that you mentioned you potentially need to work with some research company. So mm -hmm. I actually say a lot of the people, they get stuck at what I call ICP and Persona 101. That's when they do the internal analysis, closed one, closed lost, look at where they had attraction, where they, maybe they've done a workshop, they talk to some of their own customers. But in order to really understand what's working or what's out there, you have to get to what I call 102. You really have to interview a number of people in the industry, have a panel, and then do quantitative uh, research in order to understand, is this what I'm seeing internally actually in players externally? Good example is um, at uh, Uber, we, in the end, we basically found out there is, yes, there is the single purpose person that's the head of digital. They only care about the same thing. There will never be an experience. But in order to get to the experience level, customer experience, you basically talk to the CXO and they have mm -hmm. completely different way of how you talk to them if you want to acquire them. 
you need a complete different narrative, you need a complete different pitch, messaging, ads, and so on. And I think that's what's mostly overlooked. So my response to a CRO would then be typically, okay, how do you align outbound and marketing? Because typically outbound will tell a completely different story than marketing yeah. unless you have done the research. Yeah. But I think it's also so funny. Usually folks, they will hire a VP marketing. And then if they start that exercise, we're talking about now of defining ICPs, they're going to sit and go, that's not what I hired the person for. Can't they just crank up the ads and get me some more leads Where now? am I inbound? <laughs> yes. or, so it's so funny. Or more funnily, they say, oh, I'm paying you already um, 100000 or whatever. Why would I then pay another agency just because you're here? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But it's so true. And I think the other, the other interesting kind of uh, takeaway we, we glanced a little bit over is this. If you can actually have sales in your corner from a marketing perspective, that is going to be super powerful because if the business needs to prioritize some of these things, I think they're not going to start questioning the judgment of that marketing team if if they consistently have delivered and make sure. And I think this also goes back to uh, another guest we had on the show, Udi Ledergaard, where Gong, they're infamously known for the Super Bowl ad and for sponsoring in, you know basketball teams and all kinds of crazy things. But what they do is they hit the numbers over and over again. All those boring pieces, they yeah. actually have them, uh, you know, on a complete control. And I think that's also kind of what you hinted at here. You know, it just gets a whole lot easier to execute in that case. Okay. Pretty, pretty cool. I'm just kind of wrapping this here a little mm -hmm. bit, if, if, if I may. So we talked to Norman about uh, Google as an underdog in Apex, so specifically Korea, and how, you know, YouTube was big. And you basically used this as a spear to build out the search market for Google in Korea, which was a pretty awesome story. And then the other piece we spent quite some time on was actually Uberall, both as a, hey, we have kind of a very use casey positioning here that we need to broaden out and make a little bit bigger, um, how to achieve that, and also then how to grow up in the organization, whether that's uh, just vertically up or to someone else with a bigger budget. I think kind of that was kind of both, both cases here the case. So really cool chatting with you, Norman, and really, really, you know, thanks, thanks to you uh, dropping some of those insights here. Thanks so much. It was a great conversation. Thanks, Norman. Thank Have you. a good one. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.